everyone. This is Jim Hughes with AFIO Now. We are a program of recorded presentations by former U.S. intelligence officers who have great stories to tell. Today, we have a very interesting program with a great uh, speaker. To help me uh, co-host today, permit me to introduce uh, a good friend and former colleague who himself has a very strong background in East Asian affairs, and before his retirement was the deputy chief of our National Clandestine Service. He now teaches at the Institute of World Politics, uh, and I'm very pleased to say is the vice president of AFIO. Please welcome Mr. John Sano. John, welcome to AFIO Now. Thank you, Jim. Uh, and, and you're absolutely right. We have a, a very good program today. Uh, an old colleague of mine and clearly one of the leading experts on things Asia, Bruce Klinger, is the senior research fellow for Northeast Asia at the Heritage Foundation's Asian Studies Center. His specialization is Korea, Japan, but he'll also be talking a bit about China as well. He is, for those of you who are unfamiliar with, uh, with Bruce, which I doubt there are many of you, he's a frequent commentator in U.S. and foreign media. He has articles and commentaries that have appeared in major American as well as foreign publications. He's a regular guest on uh, broadcast cable news uh, outlets. He's testified before the uh, U.S. House of Representatives and the U.S. Senate's Intelligence and Foreign Affairs Committees as an expert. From 96, by way of background, from 96 to 2001, Bruce was the CIA's Deputy Division Chief for Korea. He was responsible for all analysis of political, military, economic, and leadership issues for the President of the United States and other senior U.S. policymakers. Uh, he is a distinguished graduate of the Naval National War College, sorry, where he received a master's in national security strategy. He also holds a master's degree in strategic intelligence from the Defense Intelligence College and a bachelor's degree in political science from Middlebury College in Vermont. Uh, I could go on and on with Bruce's accomplishments, but that would take up the bulk of our uh, session today. So without further ado, uh, please uh, allow me to introduce and welcome Bruce to the uh, to the podcast. Bruce, over to you. Well, yeah, thanks very much, John. Uh, yeah, the, certainly there's going to be a lot of focus on what uh, an incoming Biden administration's policies will be uh, throughout the world. Uh, you know, really, though, I think the administration is going to want to focus on domestic issues, really the, the devastating societal and economic impacts of COVID, uh, as well as other domestic issues. But the outside world has a tendency of uh, intruding upon president's priorities and, and they'll try to assert themselves. So, you know, we saw that uh, initially the Biden administration's transition team didn't include North Korea on its list of priority items. Uh, I think Kim Jong-un is just going to say, hold my beer and, and watch me do something. Uh, because North Korea has typically uh, done some kind of major provocation early in both the U.S. and a South Korea uh, administration's uh, term. So they see it as, uh, as, in the words of a North Korean defector, to train them like a dog. Uh, North Korea feels that if it, it raises tensions, it gives them leverage in forcing the U.S. or South Korea to offer concessions in order to induce North Korea back to the negotiating table. Actually, a lot of times it, it has a, a reverse effect uh, to Pyongyang's detriment. Uh, the Obama administration had come into office uh, really blaming the, the George W. Bush administration for the stalemate in negotiations. Uh, and then even before they were able to finish their policy review, as every administration does, uh, North Korea did a nuclear test, an ICBM test, and it led the Obama administration to adopt a, a stronger policy than they had originally planned on. Uh, similarly, when uh, Trump came in in, in 2017, 
the North Koreans did a lot of, of missile tests and nuclear tests, et cetera. Uh, and then it led to the fire and fury and, and the threats of preventive attack. So uh, it brought the peninsula much closer to war than really it had been in decades. So uh, North Korea may decide to do that either with a reelected Trump or more likely now a, a Biden administration. Uh, and we'll see how the Biden administration react to that. So while the, the focus is on North Korea, I think it's important to point out how a Biden administration's policy would be different towards South Korea, as well as other allies. So there really is going to be, I think, a significant difference. Uh, Biden is going to go back to a, a traditionalist view of uh, America's views towards alliances as based on mutual objectives, mutual values, shared objectives, uh, you know, rather than a transactional relationship where the U.S. is trying to literally make a profit off of the stationing of our forces overseas. So when during these uh, special measures agreement or burden sharing negotiations, uh, President Trump directed his negotiators first to demand cost plus 50 percent uh, in order to make a profit. And then after that, exponentially greater demands for money. So I think Biden will focus on uh, repairing the strained alliances, reassuring our our partners, that America is there to defend them. Because what I've been hearing for several years now in both Tokyo and Seoul is increasingly questioning the viability of the U.S. as an ally. And that even predated the Trump administration. But you know, as North Korea got closer and closer to having the ability to hit the continental United States with nuclear weapons. So uh, Biden is going to drop the uh, demands for exorbitant increases in burden sharing. And he's also said he's going to drop the or the threats that the U.S. may reduce or withdraw forces from South Korea, as well as Japan and, and other nations. So turning to, to North Korea, you know, Biden, like all of his predecessors, is going to inherit a greater threat than the, his predecessor did. So what we've seen in the last several years is North Korea has uh, successfully tested two different ICBMs that can range the continental U.S., uh, they uh, exploded what seems to be a hydrogen bomb, many uh, much, much larger than even the, the atomic weapons of 1945. So uh, they've engaged in a lot of missile testing. Uh, last year, they had a record number of, of missile tests, all short or medium range, uh, and unveiling five new weapon systems that threatened South Korea as well as our, our forces there. And then in the October 10th parade, they unveiled yet another new ICBM that's far larger than the existing ones. And it most likely is to have uh, multiple warheads on a missile, which would be uh, an attempt to overwhelm US missile defenses. So uh, also North Korea looks like they can indigenously produce uh, transporter erector launchers or TELs for their ICBMs, which would enable them to deploy a lot more ICBMs into the field, another way of overwhelming US missile defense systems. So. Uh, you know, Biden, I think, will go back to a more traditional bottom up rather than top down approach to policymaking, as well as engaging with North Korea. So uh, President Trump um, obviously had summit meetings without any kind of progress at the working level. Uh, and that's that's quite different. And although it was no more successful than the traditional bottom up approach, at least it did put to the to the test the hypothesis that some people had had is, if you only have the two leaders get together, because Kim is the only one who can make decisions in North Korea, then we could resolve a lot of these things which can't be resolved down at the working level because 
North Korean diplomats are on a very short leash. Well, we tried it and it, it was no more successful. But uh, Biden is not going to have sort of the impetuous of uh, tweeting out an invitation for a meeting at the DMZ as President Trump did. Uh, and so he's also going to put conditionality on any future summits where uh, he won't just have a summit unless there is significant progress uh, at the at the working level. And and that's more like what uh, we had in the past. And I remember going to White House meetings in 2000 when North Korea had invited President Bill Clinton to go. Uh, and they said, look, unless there's progress at the working level, we don't deploy a president to negotiate. We deploy a president to sign an agreement where there are going to be no surprises. Um, so we'll, we'll see how North Korea responds. Um, but also there's a lot of uncertainties in what Biden's policies would be towards North Korea. Uh, we don't know the parameters of an acceptable deal to him would be. Uh, there's, I think there's going to be debate within the Biden administration, uh, those that might seek a incremental approach or uh, half a loaf is better than none, whereas others may push for a, a firm commitment in, in a very comprehensive document with verification that North Korea has agreed to denuclearization, even if it's implemented in stages. Uh, and the other big unknown is how strongly will a Biden administration enforce not only UN sanctions, but also US laws. All of the administrations, Bush, Obama, Trump, have underachieved in enforcing sanctions. Uh, Obama had what I did, what I called timid incrementalism, sanction a few entities, save the additional sanctions for uh, the next North Korean provocation. Uh, and for Trump, although he, he talked about maximum pressure, it, it's never been maximum. So, uh, you know, I think some clarity to what a, a Biden administration policy would be towards both South and North Korea. Uh, but also a lot of uncertainties. So I'll, I'll leave it there and I look forward to our discussion, John. Thank you, Bruce. Uh, quick question. Um, North Korea has included in their constitution several years ago that they are indeed a nuclear state. The US and our allies have been unequivocal in stating that there must be complete and verifiable denuclearization. Uh, Kamala Harris has said that. Um, uh, demanding that there be uh, complete uh, denuclearization sort of all at once is a recipe for failure. So do you foresee the possibility that we would accept, perhaps if it's even possible, a limited nuclear state on the part of North Korea? Or is that still, do you think, in a new administration going to be the bottom line, complete, verifiable, irreversible denuclearization? Well, the, the CVID, Complete Verifiable Irreversible Dismantlement or Denuclearization, uh, you reference, it, it's not just a U.S. negotiating position. It's actually the requirement under 11 U.N. resolutions. So although the terminology, I think, was was started under the George W. Bush administration, uh, it's been incorporated in the U.N. resolutions. And so North Korea is required to abandon not only its nuclear, but also its missile and chemical and biological warfare programs uh, in that verifiable manner. So uh, I think the, the Biden administration would adhere to that. And then there's there's a debate amongst not only what I expect in the administration, but also amongst experts as to how to implement that. Now, some will say just absolutely give up on denuclearization. It'll never happen. Uh, so just try to cap the problem or slow down the problem. Others, I think, and it can be a bit of a, a question of semantics of uh, do you try to go for it all at once or incrementally? So I, the way I see it as is 
Um, you know, I would argue for a hundred yard agreement. You know, you can't play football unless you know the the, defi- the defined end zone, the parameters of the field. What is a football? What are the referees? What can they do? Um, so I think you, you have to have North Korea say, yes, under certain circumstances, if the U.S. and others do what they promise to do, uh, they would denuclearize. Now, you're not going to do it instantaneously. You're not going to do it in one day. You can't cut up all the weapons and destroy all the buildings. So I would see it as a 100-yard a, a agreement where we know what everything is going to be, uh, but you implement it in one, five, 10-yard increment. So it's going to take a, quite a while. And there are policies or there are, uh, actions that both sides have to take. Others would say, let's do a series of 10-yard agreements. You know, we agree to do this. And then if that works out and North Korea feels more confident, they'll work on another 10-yard agreement. It, it's, like I said, semantics. But I think if you don't get North Korea to commit to fully denuclearize, th- then you really don't have an agreement. I like the I like the analogy to the uh, 100-yard agreement as opposed to, you know, trying to score a touchdown on your first possession. Yeah. Good, good analogy. Uh, requires on the part of North Korea to have some confidence-building measures. And uh, a short time ago, uh, as part of the negotiations or discussions, actually, they destroyed, uh, dismantled some of their facilities that were already obsolete. Um, and they have a pension for sort of, you know, uh, the uh, sort of superficial acts. Do you see that perhaps changing in light of, say, as you put it, 100 yard, you know, maybe five or 10 yards at a time? Do you see, you know, the possibility that we would significantly reduce sanctions or wait until we get something that we accept as true confidence building? That's certainly something that that reasonable people can can disagree about. Uh, you know, the way I see it is that the sanctions are one tool. You know, what we need is a, a comprehensive integrated strategy using all the instruments of national power. And, and too often in Washington, we get these binary debates of what, which tool should we use, diplomacy or sanctions? And that's like you know, asking a, a, an architect, well, do you use a hammer or a screwdriver to build a house? Well, you use both along with other tools, and sometimes one is more appropriate than the other. So we need all of that along with military deterrence and a focus on human rights and information operations, et cetera, et cetera. So you know, wh- the way I see it is sanctions are a response to aberrant North Korean behavior. So some of it is their nuke and missile activity, and those are mostly the UN uh, resolutions, but also it's uh, illegal activity, which are uh, counter to U.S. law. So counterfeiting, money laundering, things that North Korea and its facilitators are doing in the U.S. financial system on U.S. soil. So even though a North Korean isn't walking into a bank in New York, they're using correspondent accounts or Chinese uh, entities are doing that. And therefore, our laws apply to them. So we can't turn a blind eye to illegal activity. Uh, unfortunately, several successive U.S. administrations have done that. So you know, what I think is we need to learn from the past where we had these very short, vague uh, agreements, two or three pages, just really for the sake of getting an agreement. Um, you know, and you need to think of it more in terms of like the arms control treaties we had with the Soviet Union. We didn't like the Soviets. We didn't trust the Soviets. But if you have a really detailed legal document uh, with very strict verification measures, then you're more likely to be able to feel comfortable in eventually reducing sanctions or reducing military activity in South Korea 
if you feel confident that North Korea is abiding by its side. So uh, I was on the conventional armed forces in Europe treaty negotiations, uh, and it was very detailed. So you, you identify, you know, what is a tank? What is an artillery piece, et cetera? What does it mean for it to be destroyed? So if you have a comprehensive document, then I think you're more likely to move forward. Whereas if it's vague and with differing interpretations, then North Korea can say, well, we didn't cheat in the USA. Yes, you did. And it's all very gray. Let me turn just a, a slight alteration to the role of China. Uh, Kim Jong-un, the current leader in North Korea, uh, has been, at least from a, uh, an appearance standpoint, rather chummy with Xi Jinping. He, he met him uh, certainly much more than his father did. Uh, and several times before and after the, the failed summits uh, with President Trump. How do you see their role changing? I mean, Trump said he was, uh, you know, good friends with Xi Jinping. Um, where do you see the role of China in a new administration? Well, China has always been part of the problem rather than part of the solution. Uh, you know, and one thing, I think there's a, a popular misconception about the relationship between China and North Korea. Many people see that China is obviously very big. It accounts for over 90 percent of North Korea's foreign trade. So really, China must be controlling what this little North Korean country is doing. And, th and that's not the case. Uh, you know, 5,000 years of, of North Korean or Korean history, uh, a thousand invasions by Japan, China, Mongols, et cetera, you know, makes them very suspicious of any outside power. And actually, each of the three North Korean leaders over the decades have made very derogatory comments about China, but also pointing out things like the China threat is greater to us than the U.S. threat. So North Korea does not only not take orders from China, uh, they do things that China doesn't like, but China is very unwilling to impose the kind of pressure on North Korea that the U.S. and its allies would like. So Beijing will turn a blind eye or, or openly engage in uh, violations of U.N. resolutions, U.S. law. Uh, and and they're, they're always acting like North Korea's lawyer in the U.N. Security Council. So uh, there, we can't rely on them to deliver North Korea. But there are things we can do to uh, you know, induce chi better Chinese behavior uh, because their transactions uh, – let me go back – any uh, – dollar-denominated transaction in the world is required to go through a U.S. financial institution. And the vast majority of all international transactions, including Chinese and North Korean, are denominated in dollars. So that can give us great leverage over Chinese entities. So we've seen cases where the Bank of China uh, complied with U.S. actions, even against uh, directives from the Chinese government, because they were fearful of uh, having, facing sanctions themselves. So there are things we can do sanctioning Chinese entities to try to influence at least those entities' behavior, including financial institutions, if not the Chinese government. That's a, that's a very good point. Uh, speaking of China's role, uh, and now in a relationship with, with South Korea, as you're undoubtedly aware, China represents the largest trading partner for both North Korea and South Korea. Uh, and a few years back, when the bad uh, terminal high-altitude air defense system was being contemplated, uh, the Chinese lashed out. Uh, given that South Korea and China have such a robust economic relationship, and you and others have called for South Korea to become more involved in uh, regional and global security challenges, how do you see that playing out between China and South Korea? 
Yeah, that, that's a, a lot of really good points. Um, you know, right now in the U.S., I think there's a, a very strong bipartisan anger at, at China, you know, brought on by first their bungling uh, the handling of COVID uh, and then covering up uh, how bad it was. So, you know, that really, when we see the, the economic and societal impacts in the U.S., people are very angry and they want to punish China. And what that has brought to the forefront is a lot of issues that Asia experts have known about, uh, but perhaps the, the wider electorate or the populace hasn't. The IPR violations by China, stealing U.S. company secrets, uh, illegal business practices, incursions into the East and South China Seas. So right now, as people, I think, are collectively looking to punish China, they're looking at all these other issues of, of to some of them, it's new of like, you mean they've been doing these other things that are abhorrent? Uh, so I think it's it's a very strong uh, you know, trend right now. And also internationally, we see pushback. The, the UK revert, reversed its decision on allowing Huawei to be involved in 5G technology in the UK. So it, it's a pretty broad thing. But how do you confront China? Uh, right now, the, the Trump administration has really been doing a very strong push for, in a way, sort of you're with us or you're against us. And Asian nations don't really want to decide the U.S. or China. So they're not comfortable with a formal NATO-like military coalition. Uh, they're not comfortable with just severing all economic ties with China. So there there's needs to be, a, on the one hand, a push to uh, confront China on these actions, not only economic, but military. Uh, but also you can't just ask countries to totally sever relations with their largest trading partner, their economies couldn't handle it. So that's going to be another uh, test for the incoming administration. And, and speaking of North Korean violations, one of the issues that's currently been an issue for the United States, but has not come up in negotiations either uh, bilaterally or multilaterally with North Korea is the human rights situation in North Korea, mm -hmm. by all accounts, probably the worst on the planet. Uh, we we have sanctions in place through the UN because of the human rights situation in North Korea. What should the next administration do to sort of focus more attention on it or to make it more of a linchpin in future negotiations? Does that supplant to a degree the issue on new denuclearization or can we do that in parallel? There's long been a debate uh, within the Korea Watcher community of sort of security issues such as nuclear and missile programs, and human rights. Uh, and the human rights often are pushed to the backseat uh, and, and you know, in favor of focusing on the threat to the U.S. and its allies. So, And then within the human rights community, there tends to be uh, those that want to name and shame, to, to use a phrase, of confronting North Korea and other violators uh, with their, their violations and trying to induce change. Others are more on a humanitarian side where a hungry mouth knows no politics, provide humanitarian assistance regardless of the behavior of, of a regime in place. So there's a lot of, of disagreement. Uh, I think human rights has to be one of the components of U.S. policy towards North Korea, China, and other countries. So it, it's part of our value system. We can't ignore it. Uh, but then there's the debate as to how much you can influence it or how much you, you make denuclearization contingent on improvement in human rights. But in the uh, US legislation, the North Korea Sanctions and Policy Enhancement Act, there are parts of that which uh, limit a president's ability to either uh, suspend for one year or 
eliminate U.S. sanctions. And some of the requirements are based on improvements in conditions on human rights. So it is part of U.S. law. Now, President Trump gave three very strong uh, speeches at the U.N. General Assembly, State of the Union Address, and before the National Assembly of South Korea, very critical of North Korean human rights conditions, uh, I think more strong than any other president had done so. Then since the Singapore summit, he's really abandoned uh, criticizing North Korea for its human rights. So I think the first part was good to identify the conditions. Uh, and the second part, I think, was was wrong to abandon really human rights focus in the summits. Let me ask you to put on your uh, forecasting uh, hat for a moment. I have two questions. The first one, is, and we'll do them. I'll let you answer each one separately. The first one is uh, last year uh, there was tremendous speculation that something untoward had happened to Kim Jong Un, that the young leader, who I think is only in his mid thirties, uh, suffered some type of a medical. Um, disaster. And he was un, he was not seen for a period of time. It brought into question, you know, what happens if he dies? So what do you think would happen? His sister, of course, you know, has always been named, but, the, you know, he got rid of his uncle, Chang Sung Tech. He right. got rid of a lot of generals uh, and senior policy advisors established his own sort of supremacy. Give me your prediction. What happens? Let's say he dies tomorrow. Well, I might give you what we used to call the CIA salute. Uh, you know, who knows? Uh, there's nothing in the North Korean constitution as to who would be the successor. And, and it's really, it's a family regime. So uh, the thing with, you know, playing Where's Waldo with, with Kim Jong-un and all the various rumors, he's dead, he's in a coma, he has COVID, uh, he was just being safe. Uh, it really shows the limits on some of the information we have, even within the intelligence community. And, you know, according to media reports, so the, even the CIA didn't know for two days that Kim Jong-il, the, the father of the current leader, had died. And it wasn't until North Korea announced it. So during the time when there was a speculation of, of Kim being absent, uh, you know, the, I think the, the longtime Korea watchers, we were the ones saying, we don't know. You know, he could be toes up on a slab or he could just be uh, waiting to make a, a reappearance. So I think the most speculation was from the media and others who hadn't been following Korea. We all said, look, each of the three leaders had had times where there were rumors of his death or, or coma or incapacity. So we're just going to have to wait. And sure enough, Kim came back and, you know, he's not the picture of health, but he looked pretty vibrant and, and lively when he made his appearance. So if he were to die either from, you know, one too many fat laden meals or, you know, if someone gave him a nine millimeter headache, um, you know, I think right now it's likely the sister would take over. Uh, Kim's children are 10 and, and younger than that, so they're not ready. Um, you know, there was speculation that a long exiled uncle uh, who had been ambassador to many East European countries, he had just come back to the country and could he be groomed? Uh, he doesn't really have the political base. Uh, you know, the, the formal head of the government after Kim, he, he doesn't have the base. So I think if it were to happen quickly, it would most likely be the sister, but she may be part of a, a revolutionary council or a ruling council, perhaps rather than exercising the power solely on her own. But, you know, what we saw with uh, Kim Jong-un is he had really three years to get his, his act together after his father was in a, had, had a coma. So the, the two kings worked it out so that it wasn't a sudden change when Kim Jong-il died in December 2011. 
and I think maybe they're they're starting to groom the sister now. Okay, the second question, it's uh, the forecasting question for you is: It's January twenty first, twenty twenty one. North Korea, as they've done in previous new administrations, has either conducted another larger nuclear test or they've launched an ICBM over the Sea of Japan. How does Biden react to that? Well, well first of all, on the timing of a provocation, uh, you know, North Korea does do something usually in the first year, uh, but it's not either before inauguration, nor is it on inauguration. It's usually a little bit after that. So there may be a little bit of a breathing room. Um, one thing I, I've been wondering is, you know, North Korea was making these threats of they would do something after December 31st, 2019. And we had a pretty quiet 2020. So I wonder if COVID actually has been a factor. So they did reduce their military exercises for a while. Uh, and even though they were doing these shorter range missiles, they didn't do the big provocation. So they may have been waiting out the election. And one of the things that uh, I wonder is if North Korea does a provocation to drive the U.S. back to the negotiating table, if right now COVID is preventing no North Korean negotiators from meeting face to face with their U.S. counterparts, uh, they, would they delay on a provocation because they can't drive the U.S. back to the table if they can't meet with them? I, I don't know. Uh, but that could be a factor. So it, it may not be as immediate a provocation in 2021, as as we might expect. Uh, you know, how will the the Biden administration have to react? Well, I think like much of his, of his predecessors, it would be you have to go to the UN uh, because it's a, a major violation of of UN resolutions. You have to seek stronger sanctions, and at this point, it may not even be new sanctions, but just better enforcement of previous sanctions. So you'll have to combat the people who say it's the U.S.'s fault for not offering concessions. You have to go to the to the U.N., uh, seek a new resolution, uh, push for stronger enforcement of, of sanctions, including by the U.S. You're going to have to reassure U.S. allies that we are there. We will abide by our treaty commitment. We will uh, maintain our force levels uh, at the current levels. You have to make sure that the military deterrent shield is there to protect our allies as well as ourselves. We need to also start, uh, I think, reviewing our missile defense systems. We've only got 44 interceptors in Alaska and California, and we're likely to for fire four at each incoming warhead or missile. And if North Korea is expanding its missile force or warhead force, we could run out of interceptor missiles quite quickly. So, you know, there's no magic solution. There's no Rubik's Cube combination that if only we offered these inducements or did these sanctions, North Korea will magically give up the nuclear weapons. I, I think it's more like a, the Cold War with the Soviet Union. We're in it for the long haul, as we have been. And you just have to maintain the game, your head in the game uh, and then hope for a change on the ground in North Korea. Solid points. Uh, I don't want to take up too much of a uh, lot of time, but North Korea has always in, engaged in these sort of uh, uh, harsh diatribes against American leaders, whether it's President Trump or, or John Bolton or anyone else. And the Korean news agency, a North Korean news agency, uh, issued a statement during the uh, presidential campaign here referring to pres President uh, Trump as an, uh, an egomanical uh, sort of, you know, rabbit animal. They also issued a statement on Joe Biden, and they said, and I quote, this is from the North Korean news agency, 
Mr. Biden is a rabid dog that should be beaten to death with a stick. Uh, Mr. Biden's response was, and I, and I loved his answer, I wear these insults as a badge of honor. So while I don't, as, as you correctly pointed out, I don't think we're going to see a return to the bromance uh, between the two leaders. But how do you see on a, on a sort of personal level, if you can qualify it as such, the relationship between the new president and the young dictator? Well, North Korea propaganda writers really do have a, a unique art form. Uh, you know, they refer to South Korean President Kim Dae-jong as a stinking poodle and they uh, dismiss President Moon Jae-in's comments as, you know, uh, basically inane enough to make the boiled head of a cow laugh or all these, you know, they, it's sort of like playing ad libs as a kid. You just put in, you know, great phrases, you know, to make it e even more over the top. Um, you know, so on the one hand, there's a, a certain amount of, you know, you need, to, you know, a thick skin or water off a duck's back where you don't respond to every inane North Korean comment. You know, on the other side, uh, you know, other hand, I think you do have to point out to them. It's like, guys, you know, words matter. If you go over the top because, uh, you know, someone calls you a tyranny, well, you can't expect that threatening uh, to turn Washington into a sea of fire or insulting, you know, violent acts against the president. You know, that's not going to help either. So, you know, I, I do sort of take exception when when critics of the U.S. will point to, you know, the U.S. saying a tyranny or a thug and say, oh, my God, you know, you're, you're undermining diplomacy. And it's like, well, apply the same standards to North Korea. So with Biden, uh, you know, I think he'd be willing to, as he said, he's willing to meet with Kim, but on conditions. Uh, it's not going to be a photo op. It's not going to be a handshake. So it'll be based on progress at the working level where you have either a completed document or significant progress towards a document. And we, and we saw in arms control treaties with the uh, negotiations with the Soviets, occasionally the leaders would get together sort of when uh, after a lot of progress, the, the two sides had reached an impasse. And sometimes you had to kick it up to a, a secretary of state level or a president's level. And then you have the diplomats go back to work. So, uh, you know, you're, you're not going to have the bromance. You're not going to have uh, Biden embracing a purveyor of crimes against humanity who's on the U.S. sanctions list for human rights violations as someone who loves his people, is honorable and courageous, uh, as Trump described him. But you're also, I think, not going to have a refusal to ever meet with the leader. It's just it's got to serve a purpose. Great conclusion, Bruce. Uh, we really do appreciate this. It's uh, insights into a regime. They don't call it the hermit kingdom for nothing. Uh, but it's uh, it's insightful to get an assessment as to where you think we might be going. So, again, we appreciate your time and your expertise and continued contributions to our national security. So thank you, Bruce. Well, Jim, thanks. Very, thanks very much. Uh, you know, I'll just leave you with, with one uh, thought when you mentioned earlier that I had testified before Congress. I, I remember once uh, testifying before the House Permanent Select Committee on Intelligence and intelligence being the operative work highly classified. We were 40 minutes into the briefing. Uh, and one of the, the congressmen interrupted me and said, uh, excuse me, son, which is the bad one, North or South Korea? <laughs> well, sir, that would be the North. Okay, son, you can continue. So, uh, you know, I, th I think there's still a role for experts and think tanks as, as well as uh, expertise within the government. So uh, thanks for the opportunity to talk with you today. Thank you. Thank you, Bruce. Jim, over to you. Well, this has been a very insightful uh, discussion between two experts. 
I'd like to thank my uh, co-host, John Sano, Bruce Klingner, and the Heritage Foundation for a great program today. Gentlemen, thank you very much. <laughs>